Well, good morning. Well, speaking of Stranger Things, which is our series, I just have to wonder if anybody else out there feels this way from time to time. You just look at the people that, that are living in your household, your family, and you think to yourself, I love you guys, but you are a strange group of people. Anybody else ever think that? Like, you were just a strange, and I have three, if you don't know me well, I have three uh, sons under the age of seven, and there's times where I'm like, the stuff these guys come up with, like, I'm like, Jess and I look at each other, I'm like, are we weird? Like, are we, are we the strange family? And uh, I think sometimes, unfortunately, the answer to that is yes. Uh, the thing that they're doing now is really interesting. So all of a sudden, like, just out of nowhere at some point in time, um, there was this thing that started to happen in our household where literally... Every soft item, whether it be a stuffed animal, whether it be a pillow, whether it be a blanket, whether it be a beanbag chair, all ends up in the center of our living room. And it's just this giant, like, fluffy pile of just what they call cozy. And uh, this has become some sort of thing that just happens on the regular. I, like, go to bed, and I was like, where's my pillow? Well, it's in the cozy pile, and you'll just go around the house going, cozy. Cozy, cozy, and he's in on it too. He's just grabbing pillows. Cozy, cozy, like, like, come back there, come back here with my pillow. Like, what is going on? And so they have, you know, they were doing this on a regular basis. And is, I was telling Aaron actually at some point, and I go, Aaron, like, we are a weird family. Like, this is like the thing that keeps happening in our house. Like, all these pillows and blankets end up in this big pile, and our kids just flop down into it, and they just start saying, cozy, cozy. And she just looks and she kind of smiles. I'm like, what? She's like, I think I started that. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah, this is something that my family did growing up. We would make a big nest in the middle of the living room, and we'd come and watch, get popcorn and watch movies and do this thing, this little cozy, cozy thing. So maybe it's not my family that's weird. No, I'm just kidding. But, yeah, we still are. But they love their little cozy nest, and so now they're like, Dad, come do cozy. So I'm a bigger individual and so like when I get down into the cozy it takes a little bit more effort to get up out of the cozy these days and so it's a little harder the longer that you're down in it is a bit of a struggle too to come out of the cozy there was a 2019 NBC News Wall Street Journal poll that was taken and it found that a distinct uh, minority of young American adults believe that religion and patriotism and having children are an important part of life while nearly four out of five said self-fulfillment is the key to the good life. Christian Smith found in a study of that generation that most of them believe that society is nothing more than a collection of autonomous individuals out to enjoy life. We love our cozy. And before we get on our high horses, it's like, yeah, the kids these days, you know, that generation... I have to just beg the question, because I think that this is a more pervasive issue than just a singular generation. The question is, after all, where did that idea of self-fulfillment come from? Because we either taught something or modeled something or didn't teach or didn't model something, and now there's this belief that's really pervasive in our culture that is that we can find fulfillment in the cozy little nest. That if we just make it about us, if we just find ourselves or whatever word it is or, or thing it is that we say, uh, that we're going to be able to find fulfillment really within ourselves. The Bible teaches something different, though. And I have to just really kind of wonder and really ask the question of you. I think that even if we do buy into this sometimes, and I think it's important for all of us to evaluate, right? Like if we at some, in some way or another, have we made our own, uh, have we made fulfillment really about us, right, and, and try to find it in 
ourselves? Have we made it, uh, we, have we really declared in some senses that self-fulfillment is the key to the good life? And deep down, I really have to think that we don't really believe that. Even though we live that way sometimes and we operate that way sometimes, I don't think that we ultimately believe that because we've tried it. We've tried it before, and we know that it doesn't work. If my life revolves around me, if my life is all about me, if my life is all about just existing in the coziness of the nest, we know that that's not where satisfaction is found. We know that that's not where fulfillment is found. I don't know if any of you were following this recent story out of NASA, and they you know, they put this Mars rover up on Mars, and it's really cool, uh, and that's a horrible picture of it, but if you go online, and kids that are in here, I know kids are in the room with us today, which is cool, you should have your parents show you this panoramic shot that they got, where you can literally look like a 360 view around Mars, which is really, really cool, and so uh, one of the things that I found, the story, though, from it was that one of the things they did was on the parachute of uh, the rover, they put this little coded kind of saying, you know, for those of you that are kind of like the nerds in the group, they're like, yeah, like what, there's some kind of decryption on the, the parachute. And sure enough, there was this like coded saying, and it, what, what it said was, um, dare mighty things, dare mighty things, which is the NASA motto. Now, what I want to tell you today is that there are many that dream mighty things. We know this, and many of us dream mighty things. But there are few that dare to do mighty things. Many have mighty ideas, but few take the mighty initiative that's necessary to carry those ideas out. The major difference in those who dream mighty things and those who do mighty things for God is this. This is going to be kind of the main idea we camp out on today. Those who dare to do mighty things for God defy their own comfort in exchange for God's calling. Let me say that one more time. Those who dare to do mighty things for God defy their own comfort in exchange for God's calling. And it's in him that they ultimately find their fulfillment. It's not within themselves. It's beyond themselves. Now, Nehemiah, he's one such story. And the challenge with really this series that we've been in um, is we've been tackling entire books of the Bible. So I would encourage you to, I'm really just going to be giving you a snapshot today. So I'd encourage you to go back and dig in because there's so much more than I can really uh, offer here in a 30-minute segment. But we're going to be digging into his story a little bit and really kind of running through some things that allowed Nehemiah to do great things, to do mighty things for the Lord, not just to dream or imagine or hope for mighty things, but actually to live this life that mattered, this life of true significance. Now, Nehemiah, in some ways, he was living kind of within the cozy. Now, you could say, well, no, he wasn't because he was in exile, and that couldn't have been comfortable. He did have a sweet gig, though. He was the cupbearer to the king. It was this high office which afforded him lots of access to the king. His residence was a place called Susa, which was this was actually called the name of it was meant mighty fortress. So it would have definitely been on MTV Cribs back in the day. I don't know if you still watch that show, but it, it was like just this massive uh, palace that he had the opportunity to live in. That was just the winter home. There were worse places to call home. But when the opportunity presented itself for him to choose between his own comfort the nest, and God's calling, Nehemiah dared to do mighty things for God. So we're going to look at this story. For those of us that, that maybe are even caught in the space between dreaming mighty things and doing mighty things, and you're in that in-between space, hopefully we can offer some 
uh, insight here from Nehemiah that will help propel us out of that space into the beginning of daring to do mighty things for the Lord. Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3 says this, Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, and I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so Nehemiah, there's some some messengers coming, and he's like, hey, give me the report. How's everything going back in my homeland? And he hopes for better. And by the way, Nehemiah is really kind of the the sequel to Ezra. So if you want some more background, go back and listen to Stephen's message, which was great last week, on Ezra. But long story short, the situation was improving. Now it's not improving, and here's, here's the situation. So he gets word that his homeland is in despair. His countrymen who remain under foreign power are in distress. They're facing shame. They're demoralized. The capital city is in ruin. And the wall surrounding the city is broken down. And so he gets this message, and there's a couple different options he had. You know, one thing he could have done was to say, hey, man, kind of stinks for them, you know? Like, that's rough. That kind of stinks for them, you know? Here I am living in the palace, and I'm enjoying the cozy little nest. And we, he could have had the, 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 the mindset to say, well, I hope it works out, right? Or it stinks for them. Instead, when he confronted with the opportunity, what happened was he, he, he did what separates those who dream great and those who do great. And he made a choice. The first thing that we have to do if we want to move out of the space between dreaming great and doing great is we have to make a choice. And we have to make a choice to lead God, to follow God where he leads. You know, the point in time when things really shift for any of us is this this point in time where calling, so calling really begins when conviction becomes more important than comfort. Calling begins when conviction becomes more important than comfort. He was burdened by the news. And this conviction started to erupt within him that totally defied his desire for comfort. And the conviction became stronger and stronger. And so I just want to encourage you, if you really want to to do mighty things, to dare to do mighty things, I want to encourage you to ask God to bring you to that place. That's a scary prayer. Because you don't know exactly what that's going to mean. You don't know exactly what that's going to look like, and it'd be nice to do it on your own terms, but it's a scary prayer and ultimately a propelling prayer to say to God, bring me to that place where conviction, the conviction inside of me becomes more important than my comfort. Show me where it is that you're daring me to do mighty things. So I want to encourage you to do that because it is the trailhead on the path of purpose. This place where conviction becomes more important than our comfort. And for, I don't know what it is for you today. Maybe today it's this conviction to fight for your marriage and you haven't had that conviction before. But you know it's a conviction that you need and so this conviction starts to become strong in you and it starts to defy the comfort of what you want and just what does God want out of this? What is the conviction inside of me? So maybe it's a conviction to fight for your marriage. Maybe it's a conviction to raise kids that are dedicated to the Lord. 
And in some ways, you've kind of wanted that. It seems like a good idea to you, but you've got to get to the place where that conviction is stronger than the comfort and the sacrifices that are going to be required along the way. Maybe it's a conviction to adopt a child, foster a child. Maybe it's a conviction to start some new kingdom endeavor, that thing that has woken you up a time or two, and you've thought about it before, but if you're really honest with yourself, your comfort has always been more important than that conviction. Maybe you ask God to just light a fire underneath that conviction. Or maybe it's a conviction to change or overcome something that's limited to you, that's something that has paralyzed you for your entire life, something that you've continued to fall back into over and over again. And once and for all, that conviction to change really needs to grow inside of you. Whatever your conviction, it really begins with a choice to follow God wherever he leads. And Nehemiah, he became so burdened by the report out of Jerusalem regarding his kinsmen that we read this. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. If you want to know what conviction looks like, it's when you reach that moment where he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, he prays, he repents. He repents on behalf of his nation and his people. He repents on, on behalf of his own family. It wasn't just a, hey, they messed up. It was a, hey, I've messed up. And he owns it. And he allows that conviction to take over. And then he prays this prayer. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, this man is Archer, uh, uh, Artaxerxes, which Stephen talked about a little bit last week. So he's, he's after Xerxes is Artaxerxes, and he's the leader that uh, Nehemiah is reporting to, that he's the cupbearer to. And so he knows that there's going to be a difficult conversation here because Artaxerxes may have even had something to do with the decision to stop rebuilding the wall. And so he has to get a little uncomfortable here and have a conversation with him that not, might not go so well for him. But he, he prays, God, show me favor. If this is what you want me to do, lead me into this. Nehemiah then goes to the king to ask if he may return home to rebuild the wall. And the king noticed something. He said, why is your face sad seeing you, you are not sick? So he, he picks up on the mood of the room and kind of Nehemiah being just wrecked in this moment. And he said, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I might rebuild it. So he throws this out there. He puts it in God's hands, and he says, I know what I feel that I'm, I, I need to do. I know what I have the conviction to do. Now, God, open up that door for me. Allow that to happen. And the king agrees, sends him back to begin rebuilding the wall, to begin restoring the pride and morale and future of God's nation. I remember when Jess and I um, first actually 
kind of were on the journey to, to come here to Acts is we were actually just reminiscing as a staff a little bit about the journey and about how God brought all these things together and really laid things out for us. And it was really in a time when I, there was a lot of unknowns in my life. But one thing I thought I was pretty sure about was that I was not going to go back home, <laughs> which this is home for me. And uh, I was pretty sure that, you know, God had a different plan. I was going to do new things. I was going to do different things. And so if there was one thing I was pretty settled on, it was that I was not going to go back home. But it turns out that the very thing that I was settled on that I was not going to do was the very thing that God had for me to do. And so I won't go into the whole story today, uh, but in a lot of ways it was really comfortable comfortable for us to settle in in Kentucky where we were. That's where all of our friendships were, all of our community was at that point. We'd both been there for the last four years in college, and it just made sense to us. We had this apartment that we had just gotten together, our first apartment. She just got done painting all the walls, and it was shortly after that time uh, that I I was in contact with Stephen, and he painted this picture of, of what it would look like to plant a church in Warren County, and it, it my heart started to kind of gravitate to this conviction, and so much so that I was like, yeah, I'm in. Then I remember that I was married, and I had to go and maybe mention to, like, Jess, like, hey, by the way, um, but interestingly, it, she had way more, like, she grew up in, in Kentucky, right? This was everything she knew, and when I told her the idea, said, here's what God's calling us to do, I think, what do you think? She said, yeah, we're in. We went. Now, I wish I could say that at that point in time, it was, like, really easy, right? Like, because we're doing what God's calling us to do, right? It's just really easy when you're doing what God's calling you to do. But it was lonely. It was hard. It was really difficult for her. There was moments where I thought that we might not make it up here and we might have to go back because it was difficult. But we stayed the course, and ultimately I wouldn't. At this point, the one place that I thought that would never be home again, I can't imagine not being here, not being in this place and doing what we're doing, and it's been worth it over and over again. We all have to make that choice to follow our conviction at the expense of our own comfort. Nehemiah does this, and what he realizes is what a lot of us realize when we press on toward doing what we know needs to be done. Spoiler alert, it's really, really hard. It's hard. We think that if we're just doing what God's calling us to do, right, that all the affirmation should be there. It's just easy, right? There's no resistance. There's nothing coming up against me because God's in it. He's plowing the way out in front of us. And while that's true, I can guarantee to you, guarantee you one thing. One thing you can count on is if you start chasing that conviction, one thing you can count on is resistance. There will be resistance. We have to make a choice, but that's just the beginning. Then we have to continue to make a way. Rising above resistance. If you are living out God's purpose in your life, you can count on the fact that it's not going to be easy. There may be a temptation to believe that the resistance is a sign that you should fall back. Instead, we should see it as a sign to press on. Now, in Nehemiah, what we see is that resistance comes in in, in the way that I'm talking about. It comes in a couple different forms here. And first, it comes in the form of criticism. Nehemiah's on the wall. He's got his crew together, his, his countrymen. They're building the wall. And a lot of times it's really exciting on the front end of something, right? Whatever it is, it's like usually like, you know, it's exciting on the front end. The idea is exciting. And then you kind of hit that hard part and you start building and you start experiencing the work. And you'll see that a lot of people drop out kind of along the way because as things get hard, the conviction starts to die down, and you know, we kind of gravitate back to our comfort. But what 
Nehemiah does is he continues to press on and continue to encourage others to press on. But the first form of resistance comes in the form of criticism. It says now when uh, Sanballat, he was likely a leader in that region whose authority was being challenged by the rebuilding of the wall. So when he heard that we were building the wall, here's what happened. He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of the brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and, and burned ones at that? And then you know, there's always another guy. You know, the one guy tells his joke, and then there's always another guy, like, chimes in with his joke after. And then you got Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down the wall. Good one, Tobiah. You know, like, what? What is that even, you know, he's just like that guy, a little, you know, I got this, you know, you know. But this is the point, right? Because what we like to do when we're the critic is we like to pull other critics in with us. Hey, come on, Tobiah, come on. Let's all kind of, let's gang up on these guys and let's, let's criticize them together. We're at, whenever you're doing something great or meaningful, there's always going to be critics. Now, I'm not talking about the ones that are building the wall with you, the ones that are up there with you. You can give me constructive feedback if we're up on the wall together. But if you're just standing down there watching the work, there's always somebody that has a comment, right, that's standing by just watching the work, that's not really in the game, that's not taking ownership of it. So it comes in the form of the critic. It also came in the form of discouragement. This one sometimes, this voice is sometimes louder for many of us than the voice of the critic. This voice inside that tells us it can't be done. In verse 10, it says, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. So there starts to become this belief that starts to invade the, the minds and hearts of the people. Like, we can't do this. This is too much to be done. There's no way we're going to get this done. There's no way we're going to pull this off. And I know some of you have felt that form of resistance, and maybe you're dealing with some of that right now. Maybe it's the internal battle that is ultimately holding you back. Sometimes that own self-voice is louder than those outside voices. So it can be discouragement. It can come in the form of an outside threat. In verses 11 through 12, also our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived there near came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So there's this report now that's coming that we're going to attack you guys. We're coming after you guys. And whether it was an actual threat or just the word of a threat, it didn't matter because this storyline, this narrative starts to, to come alive among them that there is an outside threat, that they will attack us, they will come and kill us. And friends and family are now calling up to their, the people that they love on the wall. They're like, they're going to attack. You need to get off the wall. Come down. It's too dangerous. Don't do it. And so these are all the things that Nehemiah is dealing with as a leader as he's continuing to try to press on to do what he knows is what he needs to be doing. So what do we do when the resistance comes? At the height of the resistance, Nehemiah reminds them of two things. I think when we're facing resistance, we need to remember. We need to remember. We need to remind ourselves of two things. Number one, what we are fighting for. Number two, who is fighting out in front of us? And this is what Nehemiah reminds them. He says, after I looked over these things over, makes an assessment of the situation, 
I stood up and I said to the nobles, to the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Why? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall each to do our own work. And so if you're facing resistance today, let me just remind you of two things. What you are fighting for is important. And the one who fights out in front of you and alongside you is strong. I mean, talk about a brave heart kind of a moment here when Nehemiah just stands before the people and he's like, we are pressing on, onward. The great God is out in front of us. Fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. All right, back to the wall. Let's go. When you face resistance, and you will, remember why you're fighting and who fights out in front of you. There will always be those that make comments and are critical. There are always going to be those who make excuses and remain miserable. And then there are those who make a way and are successful with God's help. And we have to think which category, which grouping we have a propensity toward. And maybe even which category we're sitting in right now. Are you on the wall? Those that are on the wall rarely have a ton of time to be making comments or making excuses because they're too busy building the wall. Are you up on the wall? The third thing I would say is that Nehemiah, it was about the wall, but it wasn't just about the wall. Nehemiah is about making a difference. And he made a difference through giving more than he took. A tipping point towards significance occurs when our predominant question is not, where can I find the most personal gain? But instead, where can I do the greatest good? There are those that like to add burdens to others and add value to themselves by adding burdens to others. And then there are those who like to add value to others by taking on the burden themselves. The latter group is what we call a leader. Somebody that thinks more about someone else. And Nehemiah, he made every effort to add more value back than he took. And we see in Nehemiah 5, 14 through 15, there was a lot of there was a lot of difficult things that were happening because as you can imagine, this foreign power has kind of overtaken these people. They're taking advantage of them. They're really taking from them uh, to, to, for their own benefit. And Nehemiah comes in and he's calling this out. And so he goes on to call this out. He calls out the governors and the corruption. And then he says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the, to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their da- from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Because Nehemiah's ultimate service was to King Jesus, to, to, to God Almighty. He served the people. That's what a leader does. True leaders are less concerned with the perks and more concerned with the people. He says, listen, when I, lead, when I was privileged to lead, I was given food allowance that I refused because it came at the expense of the people. 
Nehemiah saw that the leaders before him had added burdens to the people, exploited them for their own benefit, lorded over them. He vowed instead to serve the people by adding more value than he took. So let me just say, if your job is solely about what you get out of it, be it a paycheck or an opportunity to advance, if your marriage is about what you get out of it, if it's your existence on planet earth is just all about what you can get out of it during your stay here the truth is you probably are not going to get a lot of actual value out of it you might get a little temporary happiness but not true significance instead we should shift our thinking to what can i put into it at my own expense what value can i add to the people around me those are the ones that are going to find purpose And they're going to really discover that there's purpose packed in every day. If you start seeing life that way, if you start asking the question, like, what can I offer today? Like, what can I do today to pour into the lives of others? We see the principle that Stephen talked about maybe a couple weeks ago. He who refreshes others himself is refreshed. You're going to find refreshment in caring for those around you. There was a a message that I listened to. It was actually from the church that we went to when we were down in Lexington, and I still follow along. And they were doing a series of messages recently that I really appreciated because I think that there's a tendency, especially in the current moment, to compromise the conviction of the word, right, to make it more palatable. And so when I hear the word of God just being really, and the authority of God really being held in high regard, I, I just appreciate that. And so I sent a message to the leaders of the church, and essentially the message was just like, hey, I appreciate the way you guys are teaching, even difficult topics, and, um, you know, that, that, you, that you're, you're, you're stepping up in those ways. And um, my message concluded by saying, keep fighting the good fight. And then I got an email in return that, like, totally humbled me, you know? Like, I was, like, all fired up, and I, I got, you know, sent out this email. And then the email uh, that I got in return uh, is from, from John Weiss in Southland, and he said to me, um, he said, like you, I'm extremely grateful to know Jesus and have the opportunity to serve his people. I'm convinced the darkness we are dealing with in our culture will make the light we have seem brighter. I'm praying a lot of people give us the chance to explain the difference grace, truth and grace has made in our lives. And then here's the line that keeps ringing in my ears at the very end. I said, keep fighting the good fight. He said, keep washing dirty feet. Keep washing dirty feet. It's a great way to live. And I just keep thinking about that because, yes, we need to keep fighting the good fight, but we never forget the fight that we are fighting, and that's a fight for people And the way that we fight for one another is that we just keep washing dirty feet. It's a humble task, but it's an honorable task. Our Savior demonstrated to us that there is no greater thing that we can do than to keep washing dirty feet. When we live that way, we discover that every day truly is packed with purpose. You have opportunities every single day. Maybe it's not just the mighty things, but it's the small things done as Mother Teresa said, with, with a whole, like, a, a lot of love. And so the last idea that we have is, I would encourage you just to make a commitment to finish what you start. It says, now when Sanballat and Tobiah, the rest of our enemies, heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors of the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and, and meet us here. But they intended to do me harm. He knew this. And I sent messengers to them saying, and I love this. This is the line I want you to really hear. 
I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. And he didn't come down. He finished what he started. And I want to close a little differently today. And I, I also do something maybe a little bit special for, for those in the room. And um, it's going to require just a slight bit of participation from you. But if you, if this, if what I say applies to you, I just want you to stand up for a second. Just stand right where you are. And I just want to speak into some groups of people in the room today. So uh, just stand wherever you are. And some of these multiple things might apply to you. And that's okay. Just stand up for each and every one of these. Um, and yeah, you might be standing up the whole time. I don't know, we'll see. All right, here's the first one. If you're a parent, would you stand in the room wherever you're at right now? So we'll speak into you. I know you can get really, really tired. Sometimes you feel like you just don't even have it in you. Like, I can't, I'm out of energy. I'm out of steam. I can't, I can't do it. Maybe you feel like you fall, you've made mistakes. Maybe you feel like you've fallen short in some way in your parenting. Whether or not you have kids that are in your house or no longer in your house, you still play a significant role in shaping their lives. Just look at me, hear me say this. You are carrying on an important work. Don't come down. You can be seated. If you're a leader in the marketplace, in the business world, I just encourage you to stand up real quick for me. Um, if, and this could be any, any, any business job you have, any marketplace job, go ahead and stand up and, um, and, and let me just speak into you for a second. It may feel hard, business leaders, to not conform to what they say is success. It may be difficult to maintain your Christian values in the marketplace. You may feel like an outsider and on your own because you care more about integrity than the bottom line. You aim to serve those that you lead rather than use them for your own advancement. Let me just tell you, you are doing an important work. Do not come down. You can be seated. Teachers, there's teachers in the room. Teachers that may be listening in online. This has been a weird year. I think we can, we can all appreciate that. It's been uncomfortable. You've had to take on additional things that you never thought you would have to take on. It seems that there's a lot of people critical of teachers. Parents can be unforgiving. Kids can be exhausting. The job can feel unrelenting. You are doing an important work. Don't come down. You guys can be seated. I know this one might be difficult to stand for, but I encourage you to do it, or those of you at home, or if you're just fighting to bring about some change in your life right now, and you just, maybe you're seeking Jesus for the first time, and you, it, that's just been an uphill battle, or maybe there's just some internal battle that you've been dealing with, there's anxiety, depression, or just some sort of battle that you feel like that there's, there's change that you know God wants to bring about in your life, but it's been hard. Would you just stand in the room really quick? I know it feels like it would be easier to just give in, to just give up, to just go back. Maybe you feel unworthy to experience good things. 
to, to do mighty things, to dare to do mighty things, to do God things, to experience God's goodness in your life, to truly encounter him. Hear me. God is with you. This community is with you. You are doing an important work. Do not come down. You guys can see, be seated. Police officers, whether you're in the room or you're watching online, your oath to protect and serve comes with so much weight to carry. You are open to all forms of criticism regularly. You are in constant view of scrutiny. You put your own life at risk to protect others. You show up to work each day not expecting any recognition or thanks. And often you don't get any. You are doing an important work. Do not come down. Healthcare workers, if you're a healthcare worker, a nurse, a doctor, or do anything in the healthcare world, tiring year for y'all as well. You go to work each day not knowing what the new protocol is, not knowing what each new day will bring. You keep showing up to work at risk of your own health and safety. You do it simply because of your own conviction to demonstrate compassion and bring help. You're carrying on a great work. Do not come down and be seated. Ministry leaders, if you lead a core group or community group or any ministry, whether you serve with kids in our church or you're doing some kind of ministry work, would you stand please? You help to shoulder the burden of those that you lead. You pray for their needs. You listen. You speak truth. You demonstrate love. You commit yourself to discipling others. You hold babies. You comfort the crying. You show compassion. Even though you may feel unqualified at times, you may not always see the fruit of your labor. You're planting seeds. You are doing an important work. Do not come down. Followers of Jesus in the room, just stand to your feet, please. You follow Jesus. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep growing in wisdom and discernment. Keep living out your faith. Keep washing dirty feet. Keep welcoming the stranger. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep living the way of Jesus. You are doing an important work. Do not come down. You can be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the story of Nehemiah. We thank you for your people that are represented in this room, those that are not in this room. God, we need your help. We know that we have an important work ahead of us, both now and into the future. Strengthen us, equip us. Remind us, God, that you are fighting out in front of us. You are fighting alongside us. And God, help us never, never to forget why we are fighting. 